AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I am going to read the final part today of Letter to a Young Comrade. First, before I start, however, I'd like to apologize for the long break between the first part of this essay and the second part. Uh, It has been the end of the semester for me, and I've had a lot of things going on in my life in terms of work and the podcast, unfortunately, always seems to fall to the bottom of the to-do list because I've just got so many immediate demands that must be met in in my life. So again, I, I apologize. This is one of those labors of love that I really try to give my time and attention to, but sometimes it inevitably just sort of falls through the cracks. It's only me uh, who does this. I I don't really have anybody to help me. Occasionally, my daughter will give me a little bit of technical support, um, and she does great things like she designs the stickers and, um, you know, helps me with uh, a few ideas for podcasts and things to watch and things. But otherwise, this is just all on me. I'm doing this pretty low tech. I've got a snowball microphone and garage band and so um and then I am the one who actually goes back and and edits it and um just uploads it and posts it so I really appreciate all of you sticking with me over the last couple of years I'm going on now almost two and a half years of this podcast and I'm about halfway through I think the readings that I want to do I think I've done about 27 of the 47 readings of Alexander Kollontai's works that I had planned. And so I've still got a ways to go, um, partially because obviously I do uh, multiple episodes because I try to keep them under 20 minutes so that, you know, they're kind of bite-sized, not only for you to listen to, but also for me to, to edit. All right. So today I'm going to read the second half of this essay letter to a young comrade, which I think if you guys will remember from the previous episodes is this interesting text that showed up in a biography of Alexandra Kollontai by her friend and comrade Isabel de Palencia. And then uh, her English translation of this essay ends up in the House Un-American Activities Report as somehow being representative of communist ideology around the family. So one of the things that I'm actually having a hard time figuring out when I read this essay is that there are so many similarities to make way for Winged Eros, a letter to working youth, that I'm beginning to suspect that this is actually perhaps a shorter version of the essay that was translated into Spanish and was circulating in Spain at some point in the 20s and 30s and that Isabel de Palencia then translated from Spanish back into, or not back into English, but into English for her book. Now, I'm not sure whether it's Palencia who has done the abridgment of the original piece, or if this is something that Kolontai maybe wrote as a shorter version of, of her longer Make Way for Winged Eros essay. So if anybody out there, you know, knows the answer to this question, I would be really grateful if you emailed alexandra.colentai.podcast at gmail.com and let me know. 
But my suspicion, however, is that this is the same essay because there are just so many similarities. Now, that isn't to deny the fact that Kolontai may have actually just repeated herself. She may have just done a very special, short, abridged version for the Spanish. Um, I don't really know. So in some ways, I feel like we've already really dealt with this essay. But since we've started it, um, we, you know, it was much earlier in the podcast when we read this essay. I'm going to continue and finish reading it today and then just sort of highlight a couple of key points that I think are still really relevant to the, you know, days and times that we are living in today. So without further ado, this is the second half of Letter to a Young Comrade, which was translated into English in the biography uh, of Alexandra Kolontai that I mentioned by Isabel de Palencia. All right, here goes. From being a mere biological phenomenon, love has become a social and psychological factor. With women, there is still another factor to be borne in mind, the biological instinct of maternity. The social regime built on this principle requires society to possess, in the highest grade, a potential capacity for love, that is to say, a capacity for sensations of mutual attraction and sympathy. If these are lacking, real comradeship cannot become consolidated. The sensations of sympathy, such as sensitiveness and delicacy of feelings for others, are derived from the common source of a capacity to love, not in a purely sexual sense, but in the highest meaning of the word. The bourgeois systems have understood this. That is why they have tried to consolidate the family on the basis of a moral virtue, the love between married people. To be a father of a family is, in their eyes, to achieve one of the greatest ends in life for a man. Under the pressure of the economic relations that appear to us to be unacceptable in every way, the sexual instinct becomes licentious, an end in itself. Love is a conglomerate of the most diverse feelings, spiritual tenderness, passion, attraction, compassion, and even custom. The old regimes have also invested love with the idea that it is based on the principle of property. Women were supposed to belong to man, to be an instrument, a tool, chiefly for pleasure. The proletarian ideology tends to pursue and do away with the wingless eros, with its licentiousness, its satisfaction of mere carnal desires through prostitution, the conversion of the sexual act into a finality in itself, an easy pleasure, more implacably than the bourgeois moral code ever did. The ideal of love within comradeship that has been created by the proletarian ideology to take the place of that other feeling, which is absorbing and exclusive, is based on the recognition of reciprocal rights, on the art of knowing how to respect another's personality, even in the field of love, on a firm mutual support, and on the community of collective aspirations. Once the difficult times, full of tremendous responsibility, through which a communistic society had perforce to go, were over, 
love assumed a different aspect. After the bonds of sympathy and the capacity to love have been fully developed, the inequality between the sexes will disappear altogether. Love between man and woman will occupy the post of honor as the one feeling capable of enriching human happiness within a new society. At present, we are going through a period of transition, but it is to be hoped that in the new proletarian morals that are developing, the relations between man and woman will be based on 1. Equality disappearance of the overpowering masculine self-sufficiency and the servile submission of women. Two, mutual and reciprocal recognition of rights and disappearance of all feelings of property. Three, fraternal sensibility, together with an art that will allow the assimilation and comprehension of the psychic developments taking place in the soul of the beloved. In the bourgeois ideology, the woman alone was expected to possess this sensibility. Laying aside the prejudices that have, up to this moment, ruled conjugal life, the proletarian ideology has the duty to form a new morality and offer new norms in order that the relations between the sexes can be best applied to the interests of society. With the disappearance of the blind impulse of passion, the feeling of property, the egotistic fatuousness of men, and the submission of woman, and her underlying protests against the throttling of her personality, new and precious elements of love are sure to develop in time. The interest that the problems affecting love has awakened in young workers is not a sign of decadence. I am sure, young and enthusiastic comrade, that you too will find love in the place it should occupy within the ideology of the proletariat, as well as in the daily life of humanity. So now I'm going to read you a very short selection from the commentary that Palencia writes immediately following her long quotation from Alexandra Kollontai's essay, Letter to a Young Comrade. So now this is Palencia's voice. It seems to me, after reading these works, that there is nothing in them that need shock anybody who has even looked through the literature of our times. Freedom in the choice of woman for man, or the reverse, is of course upheld. But Alexandra Kollontai's pen has never been turned into an instrument at the service of utilitarian ambitions. It has never been debased in order to awaken unhealthy desires. It has been used with a high intention and a sincere wish to uplift women's condition in all spheres, to defend her right to live at liberty and to develop her personality. There is nothing pornographic or even unduly outspoken in the pages written by her. On the contrary, they reveal extreme consideration of and regard for other people's opinions. Free love, meaning the right to love and choose freely, and not an excuse for prostitution, is in Alexandra's works the expression of changes that are fully accepted throughout the world today. It is a love free from hypocrisy, but noble in its efforts to make the union of man and woman what we would all want it to be, a real and lasting 
comradeship. All right, so that's Palencia reflecting on Kolontai's letter to a young comrade. And of course, obviously, she's writing in Spain in 1947 in a very traditional patriarchal society. And I think, you know, one of the things, and I've said this on the podcast before, is that Kolontai always gets accused of sort of being a free love radical, you know, of promoting licentiousness, what she calls, you know, promiscuity, while at the same time, never sort of missing an opportunity to condemn prostitution, because she is very much opposed to the commodification of women's sexuality. But of course, for people living either in the 20s or 30s or even in the 40s in Spain, when Palencia is writing her commentary, the idea of women choosing their sexual partners, particularly choosing them out of wedlock, is for many people somehow imagined as a form of prostitution. And I think Kolontai is really being forced always to walk this really, really fine line between promoting women's economic independence as well as their spiritual independence and the ability of them to develop their personality without finding themselves either, you know, becoming a dependent wife and then losing themselves in a relationship with a man or turning to some form of sex work in order to survive and thereby commodifying herself. And um, obviously, you know, she did not um, consider that people should be, I've said this before as well, not, uh, sex should not be as easy as, as, as drinking a glass of water. In fact, you know, that's falsely attributed to her in many ways. She was just trying to say she's very opposed in many ways to wing less arrows. She understands that it happens because of the demands of the re- uh, the revolution and the civil war and the aftermath. But she's basically trying to reimagine love as a comradely partnership. And I think that's the key thing here that a lot of you know, her male comrades were opposed to because a comradely partnership means that the woman is not going to do all the housework or look after the kids or do all the things that she's supposed to do when she's in a heterosexual relationship with a man. So there's a lot of pushback against this idea of a comradely partnership of equals. It does come back, I think, really importantly, in the 40s, late 40s and early 50s in Eastern Europe, especially in countries like the German Democratic Republic or Czechoslovakia, where various, you know, marriage counselors and people basically say, look, a really healthy marriage or a good marriage, a good union between people is one of equals and not one of a breadwinning man and a sort of subordinate stay-at-home wife, but a, a relationship that really is based on comradeship. So I think it's, you know, we have to be really careful when we read Kolontai. And we also have to understand that the sensibilities of the of the times that these essays were written or when they were recirculated in the, in the sense of, you know, Palencia being very defensive in 1947 about, you know, this idea that somehow Kolontai is promoting some kind of free love or, you know, pornographic behavior, those are her words, um, or the House on American Activities Committee who who reads Letter to Working uh, Youth or this Letter to a Young Comrade and basically is totally paranoid that these crazy communist women are trying to undermine the family or undermine the basis of heterosexual monogamous marriage. But what Kolontai is really doing is she is questioning the property 
unhealthy relationship in marriage, and she is questioning the unequal basis of most heterosexual relationships. That is the key thing that she's doing. Yes, she can be very critical of prostitutes, but she is also extremely critical of women who stay at home as wives. She sees them both as women who have commodified their sexuality in a particular way. And her whole goal in this letter and in her other work is to disassociate love and affection and attention from economic transactional relationships. You know, I, I, I just feel like that is really at the core of what Colin Tai is doing. And, you know, I recently um, listened to a YouTube uh, streaming talk by a couple of people and, and somebody sort of criticized Kolontai for being, quote unquote, whore phobic, being afraid of or, or unduly critical of prostitutes. But again, I think that that's a little bit of an unfair reading of what Kolontai is doing because she is equally as critical, if not more so, of women who marry into wealth and then just stop working and allow themselves to be supported by their husbands. She considers them both equally a victim of a particular kind of commodification of women's sexuality. And, you know, I do think it's really relevant that Kolontai did not persecute prostitutes uh, or sex workers in the early years of the Soviet Union. In fact, she thought that the system was the issue. It was not an individual moral issue whatsoever. And also, I mean, again, let's be honest, you know, she's writing many of these essays in the early 20s. Uh, and at that particular moment in time, there really weren't a bunch of young women who were really into sort of a sex positive view of sex work. It was often a choice that women were found themselves forced into because of poverty, because of unemployment, because of abandonment by their husbands. And Kolontai, as Commissar of Social Welfare, was really trying to create a set of circumstances where women would have other opportunities. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. I'm glad I finally finished that essay, even though it was technically, I think I'm guessing a repeat. It's always good to go back and revisit Make Way for Winged Arrows. It's one of Colin Tai's most important works, I think. And I am really surprised these days at how Colin Tai's work is actually starting to circulate again in the public sphere. And because of that, I think it's really important not only to read the text in their original, and not just listen to what other people have to say about them, but also to really consider these texts as products of the time in which they were written. Kolontai, for her era, was incredibly radical, and she was incredibly important and powerful in terms of the examples that she set for women, not only in the Soviet Union, but obviously Women like Isabel de Palencia in Spain was hugely inspired by Kolontai's example, by her work, by her writings, not to mention all of the women in East European women's committees that I've written about in my other book, Second World, Second Sex, who also kind of take up Kolontai's mantle and carry the torch forward, trying to decommodify women's relationships with men and trying to create infrastructure 
in order to expand the social safety net so that women would have things like kindergartens and creches and, you know, paid parental leaves and, and all of the things that we're still, at least in the United States, trying to, to get. Hopefully, hopefully that will actually happen maybe in the near future. But I think the most important thing to understand is Kolontai was extremely revolutionary for her time. It may seem in retrospect that she was kind of tepid and conservative, and she did certainly have some, you know, conservative instances, particularly around the issue of sex work, but also she was very pro-natalist, and I've said that on this podcast before. I don't think we should whitewash her reputation, but I do think it's really important to remember who she was and when she was writing. She was a very, very well-educated aristocrat who basically gave her life over to fighting for the revolution and then working for the Soviet Union in some of its most difficult decades. (laughs) 